Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. Hello and welcome to Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. I'm Ben Valsler and each month I'll be bringing you the latest astronomical and cosmological news, meeting some of the world's finest space researchers and tackling your cosmic questions. This month we'll be hearing about new super-Earths, the Mars rover that's stuck in the mud and new pictures of protoplanetary disks or proplids. When you look in these details, they're not just little sort of quiescent cocoons around the stars. Some of them have got bow shocks. They've got jets coming out from them. They have sides which are being illuminated by the stars or being excited so that the, the atoms produce their own radiation. You get a fantastic intricacy of structures, and they're well worth looking at. I just think they're beautiful. I speak to Professor Jim Emerson about the Visual and Infrared Survey Telescope for Astronomy, or VISTA, and its mission to make an ordnance survey map of the skies. These sort of surveys have been done before in the visible region of the spectrum and indeed in the infrared, but this one is about 40 times more sensitive than the previous infrared ones. So basically it's collecting survey data in the infrared, the near-infrared, large regions of the sky for, well, all sorts of reasons. And Colin Stewart meets astrobiologist Lewis Dartnell to find out where we should be looking for alien life. There's a number of things we know now that we didn't know before that are really starting to open up our eyes to astrobiology and the real, very real possibility there might be some form of extraterrestrial life out there. Plus, we answer your questions on asteroids, moons and tearing the fabric of space. So if you've got any questions, feedback or comments for us, let us know by emailing astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Now we join our expert panel for a look at the latest in astronomy and cosmology news. We'll be hearing from Andrew Ponson, researcher at the Kavli Institute for Cosmology, and Dominic Ford, who works at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. But first, Carolyn Crawford, an astronomer at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, tells us what's been catching her attention in the news. Well, one thing I've been quite tranced by is the detection of some new super-Earths. Now, this is quite a strange category of planets around other stars. I mean, we're getting quite good at finding planets around other stars. I think the current tally is well over 400. But most of these are really large gas giants. They go under names like cool Neptunes, if they're a long way out from their host star, or hot Jupiters, if they're orbiting really close to it. Well, super-Earths are planets, they're not quite the mass and size on Earth, but they're getting close. And it's been announced this month, a discovery of two planetary systems where they've got six relatively low-mass stars, and two of those are super-Earths. So one's about five times the mass of our planet, and one's about seven and a half times the mass of our planet. But the key thing that's exciting is that both these planetary systems are in orbit around stars that are actually incredibly like our sun. They're a similar mass, similar age, composition. And so it shows that there are other planetary systems around stars very like our sun. I think it's exciting. We, we haven't quite yet got the, to the stage where we can detect Earth-like planets, but we're getting close to that kind of detection levels, even with sort of ground-based telescopes. 
I mean, obviously, these two, they're not like Earth. They're still going to be orbiting far too close to their stars. They're going to be too hot for liquid water or for any life to live on. But again, we're getting close to that potential discovery of an Earth-like planet orbiting about the right distance from its host star to be at comparable temperatures to the Earth. So I think that's really exciting. The other thing about these systems is they're around stars. Well, one of them's only 30 light years away, isn't it? And that's really on our back doorstep in terms of something like the galaxy, which is thousands of light years across. Yeah, they're both comparatively close by to, to our sun. Does the fact that they're quite close actually make it more likely that we would have spotted them? The fact that they're close by isn't the key thing about making it easy to make this discovery because they're discovered um, through Doppler shifts of the lines and the star spectrum. It's the gravitational wobble technique where you've seen the response of a star to something else's mass. And whilst the brighter the star, the better signal you get, and of course closer stars are brighter, the crucial thing isn't that it's um, a nearby star. In fact, most of the stars we are searching for planets around tend to be within perhaps 200 light years of the sun. We tend to be focusing on the, the nearby stellar neighbourhood at the minute. And from super-Earths in our relative close neighbourhood to really a very, very close neighbour, there's something going on with the Mars rovers. Dominic? Yes, that's right. These, of course, are NASA's Mars Exploration Rovers Spirit and Opportunity which have been exploring the surface of Mars for just a little under six years now. They landed back in January 2004, originally with a design lifetime of 90 days, but six years on, they're still going strong. Although the Spirit rover's been in a spot of trouble lately. It was driving along back in April 2009 when it broke through what appeared to be a crusty layer of the surface and it became embedded in a fine powder which was underneath this crust. And ever since then, it's been essentially stuck in the mud, finding it very difficult to get anywhere at all. Now, what NASA have been doing over the last few months is trying to reconstruct this mud in a test facility and driving a test rover, this is an exact reproduction of spirit, through this powder and seeing what driving techniques work best to get out of the mud. And apparently they've got about 12 people working full-time on this because obviously spirit is massively expensive and they really would like to get it out of this this mud they've been trying various maneuvers over the last few months and they've been moving their rover a few millimeters at a time typically wheel spinning the wheels tens of meters but only making millimeters of, of progress they've had an unfortunate setback in the last few weeks that actually one of the wheels on the rover has stopped working as as well as it should this is the rear right wheel of the rover which has essentially stopped turning and they don't know why. It's either the gearbox or it's the motor and they're going to do some more tests on that in the next few weeks. This is not the first time that Spirit has lost a wheel. Um, Its front right wheel has actually been broken for several years now and they've been dragging that along. Um, But if it lost a second wheel, that would be a real problem because the rover would be down to four out of its six wheels. So that's the Spirit rover. The Opportunity rover has been having rather more success in science. It's recently found two meteorites on the surface. It found one which they called Block Island. I love these names that NASA give these rocks. Uh, That was back in August. And then it found a second which they called Shelter Island in October. And these, I mean, really stuck out to the mission controllers because of their bluish colour, which made them very distinct from any other Martian rocks. 
Um, what's been really striking studying the chemistry of these meteorites is the pristine condition that they've been in. And that suggests that the impact was not very violent when they hit the surface of the planet. And that perhaps suggests that Mars had a thicker atmosphere in the past, which cushioned the collision of these meteorites with the surface and allowed them to remain in very good condition. It's also interesting that they don't show any impact craters around them. They seem to just be sitting there on the desert floor, don't they? Yes, yes. Is it purely a coincidence that the rovers were actually capable of doing some science on these meteorites? Obviously, they're sent there not to find meteorites, but to look at the surface of Mars. Is it just that the instruments happen to be a multi-purpose? Uh, yes. I mean, I think when Space and Opportunity were launched, NASA were prepared for whatever they found and they've got superb instruments for studying the chemistry of rocks, whatever kind of rocks they may find. So uh, they obviously thought of nearly everything in advance, but not ways to pull yourself out of what seems to be essentially quicksand. Yes. <laughs> so maybe the next rovers they'll send up will have effectively a tow truck as well. Yes, all of this will go back into NASA's research and development programme, I'm sure. <laughs> I just love the idea of all these um, scientists being paid to make effectively mud pies. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's a, there's, a, there's a complication, isn't there? Because the fact that the gravity is different on Mars from the gravity on Earth actually makes it quite hard for them to exactly recreate the problem that the rovers are in back here on Earth, doesn't it? <laughs> Certainly a lot harder to simulate in the lab, yes. Yeah. <laughs> There were also some questions about the exact chemical properties of the mud itself and whether they've got exactly the right viscosity and stickiness of the mud. And I think several times they've had to go back round and decide that the mud they've got is not the same as the mud the rover's stuck in and try a different kind of cement. It's a fascinating world, isn't it, astronomy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Carolyn, we've also heard about something that, to me, sounds like a, a biological thing, the proplids. Sounds like something you'd find floating around your bloodstream. That's an interesting idea. And in fact, when you look at some of the images of proplids, they might well remind you of little red blood cells or something floating around in a plasma. I mean, proplids are one of my favourite types of astronomical objects. Now, the name proplid, it stands for, this is quite a mouthful, protoplanetary disk. What it is, it's like a cocoon of cold and dense gas and dust that's swirling around a newly formed star. So it's like the leftover material from the formation of that star. And that forms the ingredients for the formation of any planetary system that comes along later. So it's sort of going back to the idea of the exoplanets we were just talking about. I mean, when these were first discovered in the 1990s, it was one of the best indications that planets around other stars were going to be easy to find because when they looked at young stars forming, an awful lot of them had these prop lids around them. So the reason they're back in the news, I mean, they've never really gone away, is there's been a gallery of new and much more detailed images of the prop lids in the Orion Nebula. Now, the Orion Nebula, you may know it as a great nebula in Orion's sword hanging from his belt. You can see it in a winter sky near you very soon. And we study that because it's the nearest star formation region where near here is about, you know, 1,600 light years away. So it's in one of the next spiral arms. But the great thing about these new images is you're getting to the point where you can actually catalogue their different appearances. Some are you see in silhouette against the light. Some are being lit up by nearby stars. And they form a very good comparison to maybe what, we think our solar system went through four and a half billion years when it was formed. But with a huge difference in that they're forming right in the middle of this star cluster. 
and they're being blasted by winds and radiation from these young stars. And when you look in these details, they're not just little sort of quiescent cocoons around the stars. Some of them have got bow shocks. They've got jets coming out from them. They have sides which are being illuminated by the stars or being excited so that they, the atoms produce their own radiation. You get a fantastic intricacy of structures. And they're well worth looking at. I just think they're beautiful. So what has actually taken these images? Where have they come from? They're from the Hubble Space Telescope, which was the telescope that originally discovered them back in the 1990s. These are new images where they've done a much clearer mapping of all the different structures they see within the Orion Nebula and all these proplids. This would be in the visible spectrum as well. This is the light that we can see coming off them. We're not looking at ultraviolet or the infrared. This is mainly the optical images taken. This was before the Hubble Space Telescope was refurbished, so it's mainly dealing with the visible light. However, these will make interesting targets for infrared telescopes because some of these cocoons are very cold, they're quite dense, they're blocking out the surrounding light. And if anything, it's that sort of cold, dense disk that protects the star at the centre, allowing it to collapse under gravity and to actually hatch So speaking of looking at things in the infrared, there's also news of a WISE telescope. That's absolutely right, yes. uh, A new space telescope has been launched very recently, uh, and it's called WISE not because it's particularly clever, although it is, uh, but it's actually uh, one of these acronyms that astronomers seem to love. So it actually stands for Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer. Now, uh, at the moment, we seem to be going through a period where an awful lot of infrared telescopes coming online. So just to explain what infrared telescopes really do, they're they're very much like standard optical telescopes, but infrared is just a name we give to a type of light which has a slightly longer wavelength than the light that we would normally look at with, with our own eyes. And we're interested in looking at it for many different reasons. There are all sorts of objects that you can see in the infrared that maybe you wouldn't be able to see in the optical or you get some kind of new information from looking at them in the infrared that the optical light wouldn't give you. So, for instance, you might be interested in looking for uh, local objects, I mean really local objects, things within our solar system like asteroids and comets. turns out you can see those in infrared light and it's effectively just because they're relatively uh, warm so they emit infrared light much like you and I do because we're warm objects we actually send out infrared light and because these rocks are being uh, heated up by the, the sun you can see them if you if you have an infrared telescope but it's not just local things looking a bit further afield you might be interested in finding so-called brown dwarf stars now these are these are kind of failed stars almost they're uh condensations of gas that almost made it to being a star but they weren't quite massive enough to ignite the nuclear fusion that keeps stars like our own glowing brightly so all you end up with is a sort of warm blob of gas and so we can go looking for those uh nearby in our own galaxy Uh, And that tells us a lot about the way in which stars form, if we can see these failed stars as well. So something like WISE, uh, we're hoping will get us maybe a thousand of these objects. We don't know exactly how many it will get, but that's a, a ballpark figure and that will tell us more about star formation. And looking even further afield, there are objects known as ULURGs. Now, again, that's, a, that's one of these astronomical abbreviations. It stands for Ultra Luminous Infrared Galaxies. 
And these are galaxies which are really a, a, a very long way away. Um, they're so far away that the universe was maybe only half the size that it is now at the time at which the light from those galaxies uh, left the galaxies to, to come towards us. And they're ultra-luminous because they're forming stars extremely quickly for, for one reason or another. And extremely quickly is something like a thousand stars per year, perhaps, compared to our own galaxy, which forms them about one star per year. And we see these in the infrared because they heat up the dust around them and then the dust sends out these uh, this infrared light. So we can go after these really bright objects from the early universe that tell us about more, more about the way that stars form and the way that galaxies are put together. So looking in the infrared is a, a really good idea. And uh, WISE, which is this space telescope, is going to do that. There's also a ground-based survey called VISTA, which uh, I think we're going to get to hear about a bit more uh, later in the programme. And those are kind of complementary. Uh, they take advantages. There's some advantages that you get from doing this on the ground and other advantages you get from doing it in space. And so they're, they're very much complementary missions. So it's a very good way not only to see what would normally be invisible, but actually to learn a lot more about the bits that we can already see, but we don't necessarily know enough about. That's absolutely right. So, for instance, if you take one of these galaxies, that they're a very long way away, and so we're seeing the light very delayed from them. And, and in other words, we're, we're seeing galaxies from early in the history of the universe. Well, suppose you can only see them in the optical uh, it's often quite hard to figure out exactly what's going on because it might be that they're very bright but there's a lot of dust around them that's actually filtering out the optical light. But once you add in the infrared picture, you can see if that dust's there because it's going to be sending out this infrared light. And so you learn more about objects that uh, you already knew about. The interesting thing, of course, is that both of these instruments are unusually survey telescopes, so they're mapping the whole sky in the infrared. It's an interesting comparison to um, missions like the Herschel Space Observatory or the Spitzer Space Telescope and even the fourth, you know, the next generation space telescope, which also work in the infrared, but they can only do long observations on tiny patches of the sky, particularly interesting objects. So big surveys like this prepare the way they they show us what's most interesting in the sky that we can follow up later with the really big telescopes working in the infrared. Of course, the Spitzer Space Telescope is the NASA infrared observatory that we've been hearing about quite a lot in the past few years. That telescope actually ran out of liquid helium earlier this year. These telescopes have to be kept cool and they have to have a continual flow of coolant. And WISE is part of the next generation, which is going to run for actually the next 10 months only. Uh, before WISE runs out of its helium coolant. That was Dominic Ford, and before him, Andrew Ponson and Carolyn Crawford with a roundup of space science news. They'll be back later on to tackle your questions. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this programme, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Still to come, Lewis Dartnell explains to Colin Stewart why we think there may be life out in space and where's the best place to start the search. But first, VISTA is the Visual and Infrared Survey Telescope for Astronomy and has recently started returning some incredible images. So I spoke to Jim Emerson, Professor of Astrophysics at Queen Mary University of London and Director of the VISTA Consortium to find out what science they're hoping to use it for. The large telescopes 
want to find interesting objects to study, but they don't always know where they are. And it would be very inefficient use of the time of a very large telescope, I'm talking about an eight-metre diameter telescope, to, to search for little objects because they have rather narrow fields of view. So this is a survey telescope which will either use it to study further with the VLTs, in other words, objects you want to study further, or indeed you can just do a whole lot of science from the data you collect itself. These sort of surveys have been done before in the visible region of the spectrum and indeed in the infrared, but this one is about 40 times more sensitive than the previous infrared ones. As far as the science that goes, it's kind of all things to all astronomers. So think of it, if you had an ordnance survey map, some people might want to look at it to find where the pubs were, some people want to know where the railway stations, some want to know where the rivers were, some the hills, for different interests. It's the same sort of thing with a survey. The astronomers who are interested in galaxies will, or particular types of galaxies will find those in the surveys and study them. The people who want a particular kind of star will find those. And so there are many, many different sorts of science you can do with the survey, which is its strength, and in fact why people are very keen to do such surveys. It seems to be quite a record-breaking telescope as well. I understand it has the largest infrared transparent window that's ever been made. Um, it seems to scan to 67 million pixels and needs to be minus 200 degrees C. It sounds like quite a lot of challenges actually making it. Yes, uh, there were a lot of challenges making it. Um, I mean, one way of uh, sort of quantifying it is to say it actually cost £38 million altogether and took 11 years. And the, challenge, the basic challenge is that you want to have a sensitive system that will see far away, but equally you want to survey a large area at any one time. That's the, the niche of VISTA, if you like. So it's not the biggest telescope. The biggest telescopes on the ground are 8, 10 metres. It's only 4 metres. It's not got the widest field of view. Binoculars have got the widest, widest field of view. But it's got the largest product of the, the collecting area and the area of the sky you look at. And the problem with optics is it's fairly straightforward to get a good image on axis, if, unless you make a silly mistake. What's very difficult is to get good images over a large field of view. That's why you spend a lot of money or pay a lot of money for a wide field lens on a camera you'd buy in a camera shop on the high street. So it's really the technique for getting good quality images over one and a half degree field of view, which is what Vista has. And there are all sorts of technical difficulties with actually taking the large amount of light and concentrating it all on some small detectors and the various innovative things in the way we went about doing that. Most notably, I suppose, that we used the most curved mirror anybody had had. And the large area for the camera window that you mentioned is precisely because you're trying to put a large area of mirror and a large area of sky through without losing any of the light. And Vista is also based in Chile, I understand, at quite an altitude. It's about 2,500 metres. It's at the site run by the European Southern Observatory. It's, it's now, in fact, the European Southern Observatory Telescope. And it's in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And it's on a peak next to the one where they run the four eight-metre telescopes known as the VLT, the Very Large Telescope. Or in fact, there are four of them. And they are, in my view and the view of many people, the best ground-based telescopes, the most productive ground-based telescopes uh, in the world. So that it's there because... The atmospheric quality is excellent. It's a desert, doesn't rain very much, not many clouds. But also the images are very steady, so you don't find that the image of your star is zipping about your detector. It's not twinkling. So it's the, the sort of non-twinkling property of the atmosphere there that's, that's very attractive to us. Sounds like an ideal place to work, I think. You mentioned the, the quality of the pictures that you're hoping to pick up, and we have had some images back from Vista now. What sort of things have you been looking at so far? 
the images that have come out so far were taken for publicity purposes to be pretty pictures. And we basically had one where we looked at a region of star formation and it included a region where there are hot young stars that are ionizing the gas. And this is called the flame nebula. And that picture is a one and a half degree by one degree picture. So it's a much larger field of view than you normally would see in an infrared picture from a telescope. And down at the bottom of the picture, you see a lot of dust clouds and the sort of infrared ghostly remnants of the horsehead nebula, which people are probably fairly familiar with. And the point is that in the infrared, the wavelength of the light is much bigger than the size of the dust grains that are in space that are obscuring some of the light in the visible. So you sort of see through this dust in the infrared and you get a different picture. We've also released pictures of towards the center of our galaxy, where basically you just see millions and millions of stars with some interesting structures in there. But again, it, the point is to show how, how much the infrared sees through the dust. So you can see all kinds of stuff that you couldn't see in the visible. And then we've got another picture which shows a cluster of galaxies just to show Vista's ability to see, see further away. And of course, the wonderful thing about this, seeing things that we couldn't normally see in the visual spectrum, we're likely to find things that we hadn't necessarily expected were there. Yes. Well, of course, the, the science case one makes for a telescope like, involves doing bits of science on things you, you either know are there or know ought to be there. And, of course, the problem in many of these cases is you know they're there, but you don't know where they are. So, for example, you want to find galaxies uh, in the early stages formation to work out how galaxies actually formed. There are theories, but the whole point of science, of course, is to mix some facts with some theories. So one wants to find some galaxies that appear to be in the early stage of formation and then study them in detail. So this is particularly good, or the infrared is particularly good, um, in general for, as I mentioned earlier, seeing through dust. It also tends to look at the high redshift universe because the light gets uh, stretched into the infrared from the visible by the expansion of the universe. And it's also good for seeing cool objects because cooler things put out relatively more of their radiation in the infrared. So there are various programs to look for specific kinds of stars and galaxies that people know about. But you know, often the most exciting things that come out of science are what you're not expecting. And of course, I don't know what I'm not expecting it because if I knew what it was, I'd be expecting it. But, but these surveys will produce objects, you know, I, I would guess, just based on history, that astronomical history, that these things will produce objects that we didn't expect were there and we'll find them because they're peculiar and different from everybody else, everything else and then we'll eventually work out what they are. That's what's happened in the past with other surveys. Professor Jim Emerson from Queen Mary University of London explaining what VISTA will be used for and the tantalising likelihood that it will discover something we've never seen before. Extraterrestrial life still evades scientists, though not for lack of trying. Astrobiology is a young but exciting field to work in, so Colin Stewart, astronomer at the Royal Observatory, went to meet Dr Lewis Dartnell, an astrobiologist at University College London. Living in London, I'm constantly aware that I share my city with thousands of other people. Throw in the mice, pigeons and urban foxes, and you can't fail to notice that we're not alone on our planet. But what about the bigger picture? Do we share our sun with fellow solar system citizens? The emerging scientific field of astrobiology is looking for an answer to just that question. I took the icon of London life, the tube, up to University College London to speak to astrobiologist Dr Lewis Dartnell. And I started by asking him about the research that pays his bills. 
Astrobiology is, is the science all about looking into the possibility of there being life beyond Earth, so extraterrestrial life, or quite literally for my job as an astrobiologist, I hunt for aliens. And the particular planet I'm focusing on is Mars, our next-door neighbour planet, and the possibility there might be primitive life, bacterial, microbial life, um, either extinct or perhaps even alive and dormant in the, in the surface, dusty sands of the red planet. So I guess it must be quite a fairly new science then. It can't have been going on for very long in an academic sense. Well, I suppose people have been wondering about our own origins on Earth and whether we're alone or whether there's, there's beings like us in the heavens. They've been thinking about these for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But astrobiology is really coming of age. It's really maturing as a science. I mean, we, we built our, our Viking probes um, to study the surface of Mars, to look for signs of life there back in the 70s. And there's a bit of a, a slump in interest when the results came out very con- uh, inconclusive, very confusing and seemingly negative results for life. And it's only really now that people are starting to readdress those assumptions and astrobiology is starting to take off again with some of the new discoveries we've made in just the last 10 or 15 years. And in particular in things like searching for extremophiles, so the hardiest life forms on our own planet. We were finding things in other places we didn't even bother to check before, so the very deep ocean or in boiling uh, lakes of acidic volcanic water. And also with our astronomers, when we're looking out into the heavens, we've now discovered over 400 other planets orbiting distant stars in our galaxy. So there's a number of things we know now that we didn't know before that are really starting to open up our eyes to astrobiology and the real, very real possibility there might be some form of extraterrestrial life out there. So you've mentioned Mars as the subject you work on, and you mentioned Viking. That's obviously a way you can go to Mars, but do you rely on spacecraft? Because obviously you can't go to Mars. Well, exactly that. At the moment, we're, we're sending our, our emissaries, our proxies to these other planets. We, we can build machines that can survive the space environment and, and last for, for years, in the case of the two Mars rovers at the moment, on the surface of the planet. And obviously, we haven't sent humans any further um, beyond our front doorstep than, than to the moon. Although, hopefully, in, in a few decades' time, we'll have sent humans to Mars to explore for signs of life and do other science there. But you're right, for the moment... We're sending our machines, our robots, uh, to, to do our research for us. So you're based here at UCL in London, and so obviously you must do research here. Well, that's it. So we're, we're sat at the moment in the centre for planetary sciences, and there's a lot of people researching into meteorites or the environments on Mars or, or Venus, um, what their atmospheres are like. And alongside running computer simulations of the cosmic radiation that would be beating down on the surface of Mars and damaging or, or killing any life there, I also do a lot of experimental work in some microbiology labs here with some bacteria I've cultured from the dry um, valleys in Antarctica. It's one of the coldest, driest, harshest environments we have on Earth, which in many respects is, is like the surface of Mars. So I'm, I'm combining in my research theoretical simulation with some getting my hands dirty in a lab, studying organisms from Earth, getting to know, know earthly life and seeing how well it can survive the, the environments beyond the Earth. So why Mars? Why not any of the other planets of our solar system? Well, in many respects, Mars is very, very Earth-like. It's a, it's a big, rocky planet. Um, and we know for a fact that earlier in its history, when, when life was first getting started on Earth, Mars was very, very much more Earth-like. It had seas and lakes and rivers, an ocean covering its northern hemisphere, the top half of the planet. And it would have had to have had a thicker atmosphere to provide a, you know, a planetary blanket, a greenhouse effect, to keep water liquid on the surface. 
But something seems to have gone wrong with Mars. It, it suffered some kind of environmental catastrophe, and it's had a lot of its atmosphere blown away into space, and the water seems to have disappeared. We see lots of very large river valleys and, and dried-up lakes, but we can't see that water anymore. So perhaps it's soaked down into the crust, and maybe that's where the Martian life is surviving, hiding away from the harsh conditions on the surface, deep underground. So if Mars is the most likely place, any other places in our solar system that may be likely for life? Well, beyond the, the planet Mars, some of the other worlds, some of the other moons in our solar system are very, very exciting for their astrobiological potential. Firstly, we could talk about Europa, which is one of the icy moons of Jupiter, was discovered by Galileo 400 years ago now. And beneath the icy surface of this frozen little moon, we know there's an ocean beneath there, a subsurface ocean, with more liquid water in it, we think, and all of the seas and lakes and rivers and oceans, the whole of the Earth combined, it really is a water world. And it might provide exactly the kind of environment in this alien ocean for some kind of extraterrestrial primitive life again to have got started. And if we start looking further out in the solar system to Saturn and one of its moons, Titan, again we see some very, very interesting planetary processes going on on this giant moon. It's, it's bigger even than the planet Mercury. It's got a very thick atmosphere, thicker even the atmosphere we're breathing at the moment on Earth, and a lot of interesting organic chemistry going on its surface, and very widespread signs of fluid flowing across its surface. We see lakes, and we see rain clouds, and we see drizzle, and we see rivers. But these aren't rivers of liquid water, but they're rivers of liquid methane. So any titanic life, if it is there, is going to have to be pretty exotic, pretty, pretty alien to us, based on liquid water, like all life on Earth would be, or all life on Mars, but liquid methane. We don't really know if the chemistry can, can produce anything as exciting and complex as life if you dissolve things in methane. It sounds like the life within our solar system is being restricted to primitive life. Is that because these other bodies aren't in the ideal place around the sun that we are on the Earth? Well, the Earth does sit quite snugly in a special region around the sun. It's the so-called habitable zone, because it's not too hot, it's not too cold, but it's just right for liquid water. So it's called the Goldilocks zone around a star as well. But it turns out that perhaps you don't really need to have a planet orbiting in the Goldilocks zone. So if we're talking about Titan, perhaps with exotic biochemistry, or even Europa, Europa's far beyond the habitable zone of, of our sun, but it's got another heat source, the churning and flexing and pummeling of its insides from the intense gravitational field of its planet Jupiter. And that's warming up the inside of Europa and melting this ice into, into an ocean. So perhaps we should be broadening our minds a bit more. And if we're looking for life on planets or moons and other star systems, in other stars in our galaxy, perhaps we don't need uh, an exactly Earth-sized planet orbiting exactly a sun-like star with our same kind of um, orbital range. There could be far greater spread of habitats that could support extraterrestrial life in our galaxy. It is reasonably simple to send a probe to Mars or even out to Europa to have a look. But if you're talking about trying to find life and looking at astrobiology beyond our solar system, further out into the galaxy, that seems then to be a bit harder to do. How do we go about doing that? Well, you're right. It would be very, very difficult to, to send the kind of probes you send to Mars to planets if you find them um, that could be habitable around other stars. It would take hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands, for our fastest rockets we have at the moment to shoot a probe to a planet orbiting another star. But the good news is we don't really need to go there to start looking for signs of life. As an astronomer, once you've detected a planet orbiting another star, we can start building even bigger telescopes, start reading the chemistry of the atmosphere, start reading what kind of molecules they have in the air. And if we start seeing molecules like oxygen or methane in the atmosphere of a planet at the same time, that would be a very good indication that, that there's life there. 
Because as you understand it, the only way you can get those two gases in high concentrations into a planet's atmosphere is for life to have made it and, and pumped it in there. Astrobiologist Lewis Dartnell from University College London speaking to Colin Stewart, science communicator and astronomer at the Royal Observatory. This is Naked Astronomy, a space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. We want to hear from you about what you'd like to see included in this astronomy podcast. Get in touch with any questions, feedback or requests to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But now we return to Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic to take on your queries about the cosmos. Firstly, we have a question from Jason who asks, could the Earth capture a new moon? Yes, it could do although it's quite unlikely to acquire a moon like our own moon at this point. Now, there are several ways that a planet can pick up a moon. Uh, We think that the Earth's moon that we know and love formed when a very large asteroid, probably actually something the size of a planet, which people have given the name Thea, crashed directly into the Earth. And the collision was so violent that it completely melted the Earth's mantle. And a globule of this liquid rock flew off into space, and then solidified to form the Moon. Um, now that's very unlikely to happen now because there aren't planet-sized rocks floating around the solar system. The only body that would be big enough would be Mars, and that's thankfully quite a long way away. If an asteroid were to drift quite close to our planet and it was moving quite slowly, then its orbit could be perturbed so much that it became gravitationally locked to the Earth and became a moon like our own. And that's actually how we think Mars picked up its moons Phobos and Deimos. And we think that's also how Saturn picked up some of its moons. You can tell the difference between moons which have been picked up as asteroids from ones which are formed out of the mantle as our own moon from their composition. Our moon is chemically very similar to the Earth, whereas Phobos and Deimos are chemically quite distinct from Mars. Fascinating stuff. Carolyn, we've had a question that seems to be on a similar theme. This is from Greg Lorenz, and he wants to know why the asteroid belt in our solar system isn't just a planet. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. We have this asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter where you've got hundreds or thousands of these sort of misshapen rocky metal objects that can be sort of tens or even hundreds of kilometres across. And Certainly years ago, the thinking used to be that these were the shattered remains of a planet that had formed, you know, similar to perhaps the shattered remains of a, of a moon that give the, the rings around Saturn. However, it is actually quite difficult to destroy a large planet, um, especially later on in the solar system. And when you look at the way the composition varies across the asteroid belt, it's a very smooth variation in terms of the, the distribution of rock and metal. And also they're all in very circular orbits. So all of those are not consistent with a destroyed planet. What we think is there certainly is enough matter, or there was enough matter in the asteroid belt to form a planet. But none of these particles that were out in that orbit or these lumps of rock ever coalesced to, to form a planet is because of the gravitational influence of Jupiter. It's no coincidence this asteroid belt is right next to the most massive planet in our solar system. And its gravitational influence, it keeps just sort of stirring them up and stopping them from just collapsing down together in a nice sort of stable orbit around the sun. 
And, I mean, obviously this all happened a long time ago in the solar system, but you just have this continual stirring up by the proto-Jupiter of all the objects in the asteroid belt, and some of them were thrown right out of the solar system, some of them crashed down onto the inner planets. I mean, that's where all the impact craters you see on the Moon, Mars, Mercury, and where have you come from. This is this bombardment that happened about three and a half to four billion years ago. So the answer really is it's not a planet because it's right next to Jupiter. Fascinating to think that just the presence of Jupiter stops it from coalescing and becoming another planet in our solar system. But thinking of the edges of our solar system, we've had a question from Peter Conway. Um, Dominic, I think I'll bring this one back to you. He says, is there a large planet out beyond Pluto? The short answer is that there could be and probably are millions of small asteroids outside the orbit of Pluto. And some of those may be similar in size to Pluto itself. But probably none of them are approaching the size of the Earth and certainly no bigger than that. The longer answer is it's really quite interesting to ask if there were a big planet out there, how we would know it was there. If you point a telescope at a big planet that's a hypothetical big planet that's in the outer solar system, it would be very hard to get an image of that planet because it would be so very faint. There's one effect that when you look at a light source, which is a long way away, it tends to appear quite faint. But because planets shine in reflected light, and they're not only distant from us, they're also distant from the sun, which is illuminating them, that makes them doubly faint and makes it really very hard to see planets out in the outer reaches of the solar system. However, large bodies have quite appreciable gravitational fields, and that means they exert gravitational influence on other bodies in the solar system, and in particular on long-period comets, which spend a significant fraction of their time outside the orbit of Pluto, potentially being influenced by a planet if there was one out there. And what we would expect to see if there was a big planet was that it would stir up these long-period comets. And if you looked at the distribution of places in the sky where comets came from, you'd expect it to be biased towards where this stirring effect was. In fact, you see that long-period comets come pretty much randomly from any place in the sky, and that suggests that the mass distribution in the outer outskirts of the solar system is more or less homogeneous, and that suggests there's no big planet out there. Interesting stuff. Well, we've had uh, two questions that I think are related, and I'll bring these to you, Andrew. One's from Keith, and he asks, does the Big Bang Theory suggest that we all started at one point? Yes, the answer to that to that question is yes, and certainly in terms of the classical Big Bang picture, that there was certainly sort of one point at which all the matter of the universe was contained. If you if you go back early enough in time, but I want to add two uh, cautions to that. The first one is that it's natural to then say. Okay, well, where is that point then? Where is the point that everything was concentrated? And unfortunately, you can't really give a good answer to that question. And one way of thinking about why that is, is because of Einstein's picture of the way that space and time work. And in particular, Einstein uh, saw that space and time can't be considered separately, but they have to be put together into this one four-dimensional entity he called space-time. And that means that If I look at a point in space-time, it's not only in a particular place, it's at a particular time. 
So an actual point like the Big Bang is happened at a particular time, which is a long time ago, and there's not actually a point at our own time that corresponds to that. You'd need to have some way of saying, well, where, how, how do you trace a point through time? What, one way you could do that would be by saying, well, where does the stuff that was at that point end up today? But the thing is, because the whole universe uh, came from this one point, everything today came from that original point. So if you follow that argument, that point is now everywhere. So because of the, this complication, you can't really point somewhere in the universe and say, well, that's where everything started. But there's one other caveat, which is that if you wind back the tape far enough, everything gets crammed together so closely, you're packing everything together, the energies involved become so huge that uh, so-called quantum mechanical effects, these are the effects that are important for understanding how atoms work, for instance, they become really important in understanding what's going on. And that might, if we could really understand that in, in more detail than we do today, that might change our opinion on these things and show that it didn't really quite get to one point and there's some fuzz around the edges. Fuzz around the edges of the universe. Interesting idea. Well, thinking of the fuzzy fabric of space, we've also had a question from Joe who says, will the expansion of the universe eventually tear the fabric of space itself? That's a really nice question. Well, of course, a lot of effort has been put into understanding uh, what will happen to our universe in the future. And you can use exactly Einstein's ideas, Einstein's general relativity, to predict, in fact, what, what will happen. Um, one possibility is the so-called big crunch. That's where gravity is strong enough that although everything is flying apart today, gravity kind of takes over and starts pulling everything back together again. And in the end, you end up with something that's almost like the opposite of the Big Bang. Everything gets closer and closer together and eventually ends up in maybe one point. Now, that's called the big crunch. Another possibility, though, is that the universe carries on expanding forever. And we think, in fact, that that's the kind of universe that we live in. And the reason for that is something called dark energy. Now, it's a very impressive sounding uh, uh, name to, to give something. But in fact, we don't really know what's going on with dark energy. But for some reason or another, it seems that the expansion of the universe is actually speeding up. So rather than it actually collapsing, what we think w will happen is that it will go on expanding forever thanks to this uh, mysterious force that we currently call dark energy. But there's a third possibility, and this begins to touch on exactly this question, can the fabric of space-time be torn? Because if you take the idea of dark energy and push it a little bit further, you, you make the effect sort of slightly stronger than the typical dark energy models uh, that we have then instead of the universe just expanding forever, it expands at a faster and faster rate in such a way that if you follow, you know, point A and point B, they're getting slowly further and further apart at the moment. But if you go to this kind of super dark energy, then it will actually push those points apart so fast that they're actually infinitely far apart in a finite amount of time. So you can wait for a finite amount of time and these points will get to a point where they're infinitely far apart. 
Now, there are all sorts of problems with this idea. It violates all sorts of conditions in, in general relativity. Um, if you have this kind of matter, this super dark energy, then uh, it turns out you can have also time machines and wormholes and these kind of things that we like to avoid. Nonetheless, observationally, we can't rule it out. And if that kind of super dark energy really is there then eventually it will actually destroy all structure in the universe because of the way it speeds up the expansion. Eventually even the solar system will get ripped to bits and then a bit later planets will get ripped to bits and then atoms and then eventually the fabric of space-time, if you like itself, is in fact ripped to shreds and the whole universe ceases to exist. But don't get worried. Even in a really strong model of this, it's tens of billions of years before any of this starts to happen. So no need to panic about the universe unravelling just yet. That was Andrew Ponson, Carolyn Crawford and Dominic Ford answering your space science questions. If you've got something for the panel to tackle, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientist.com. But that's all we have for this Naked Astronomy podcast. We'll be back soon with more space science news, interviews and questions. If you would like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, find us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientist and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council. 